You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the first episode of Season 7. I hope you've had the chance to listen to both parts of the Season 6 special that I released last week. They focused on the life and crimes of Peter Manuel. Please check them out if you haven't already and let me know your thoughts. Before we get into this week's episode, let's break the ice as always. The show's opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. Here is this week's Dad Fact. In the event that you need to break down a door, anchor one heel into the ground and then, using the heel of your other foot, kick the space next to the lock. Hmm. So, let me figure this out. So you need to break a door down, put one heel in the ground, using the heel of your other, kick the space next to the... Okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I don't know why I didn't understand that first time. Good tip if you ever need to break down a door, I guess. This week's case was suggested via Instagram by listeners Stephanie Thomas and Rick Brown. We're in Camden Town this week, which is a district of northwest London. Here are your five quickfire facts about Camden Town. Number one, the name of Camden Town was taken from the name of Charles Pratt, the first Earl Camden. In 1791, he started the development of the settlement that would later become Camden Town. Number two, a life-size bronze Amy Winehouse statue is located in the Stables Market in Camden Town as a tribute to the late singer. She reportedly loved Camden, and it's the place her fans associate her with the most. Number three, author Charles Dickens moved to Camden at the age of ten. It's thought that the home of Tiny Tim in A Christmas Carol was inspired by a house near his home on Bayham Street. Number four, the Camden Catacombs are a system of underground passages underneath part of the Camden Markets. They were constructed in the 19th century, however, they were never used as repositories for dead bodies, so they aren't technically catacombs. And number five, the Camden Markets are located in the historic former Pickford Stables in Camden Town. The markets have been around since the early 1970s. As of the 2011 census, the estimated population of Camden Town with Primrose Hill and Cantalow's Ward was 24,538. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. Our villain this week goes by the name of Anthony John Hardy. He was born in Burton-on-Trent on May 31st, 1951. I could not find any information about his parents besides his dad being a coal miner, as so many Midlands and Northern men were in the UK in the 50s. As far as his childhood goes, it seems to have been rather ordinary. Hardy had three siblings, each of whom was older than him, and school was something he was said to not only enjoy, but excel at. Wanting to remove himself from the lower class life in which he was raised, Hardy submitted a successful application to Imperial College London. To give some context on how prestigious that university is, it's currently ranked the third best university in Europe, behind Oxford and Cambridge, and the 12th best university in the world. Clearly, he had a lot going on in his grey matter. Later in life, it would be Hardy's brain that caused him so many problems, and I don't mean from an intelligence perspective. 
the fantastic potential that saw him earn an engineering degree from the Oni University in the UK to focus exclusively on engineering, as well as science, medicine and business, would soon be overtaken by a series of mental health problems. If we look at our time frame logically, Hardy will have started university in the fall of 1969, when he was 18, and assuming it was a three-year course, he'll have completed it in 1972, when he was 21. Whether or not university worked back in the late 60s as it does now is a discussion for another day. It was during his university days that he met a fellow student named Judith Dwight, with whom Hardy formed a bond. The pair remained an item throughout the rest of their time there. After leaving university, Hardy's employment history is limited. All I know is that he became the manager of a well-established business. It's logical to assume that it was an engineering business of some description. Hardy married Judith at some point during the mid-1970s, but even back then he was showing signs that things weren't quite right mentally. The couple would go on to have four children together, three boys and a girl, with several news outlets claiming they had emigrated to Tasmania, a small island to the south of Australia located 300 miles off Melbourne. The reason for the emigration was that Hardy had lost his job, so the couple likely felt if there was ever a time to start anew, it was then. Whilst over there, Hardy's mental state deteriorated rapidly and he was soon diagnosed with both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, which at the time was more commonly known as manic depression. At 6.30am on April 5th, 1982, Hardy attacked Judith while she slept. In preparation, he had placed a bottle of water in the freezer a day earlier to enable the liquid inside to freeze. Retrieving the now solid block of ice, Hardy snuck into the bedroom and used it to beat his wife over the head. Judith was then dragged by her husband to the bathroom before having her head forced under the water he had filled the bath with. She tried to pull the plug out but it had been jammed in by Hardy. The attempt to drown Judith was just that, an attempt, as Hardy thankfully didn't kill his then wife. It wasn't a case of Hardy realising what he was doing though. By all accounts, the only reason he stopped was that the couple's eldest child walked in on him mid-attack and started screaming. Judith was hospitalised with mild bruising on her head and legs. Who knows what else he may have done had he successfully drowned Judith. I fear the children may have been next, and a complete family annihilation may have occurred. Hardy was initially arrested for assaulting Judith, but she opted not to press charges, so he served no jail time. The family appear to have moved back to the UK shortly after that attack. Back in the UK, and only a few weeks removed from the attempted murder, Hardy held Judith against her will in a hotel room and threatened to kill her. Judith filed for divorce on May 14th, 1982 on the grounds of domestic violence. They attempted to reconcile, but by February 1984, their relationship had broken down once more. One final reconciliation attempt also failed, with the pair's relationship finally ending for good in 1985. Judith would go on to say, I watched his descent into madness. I left him when the children were little. It was an easy decision to make. Hardy would spend a short period of time in a psychiatric unit after the divorce, perhaps it was in the terms. Taking the divorce horribly, Hardy continued to stalk and harass Judith for the next couple of years, even after being handed a lifelong injunction. At the time, I believe Judith and the kids lived in Bury, Greater Manchester, whereas Hardy seems to have had no fixed abode. He spent his time in various psychiatric units, hostels and prisons during the rest of the 80s and 90s. 
Convictions for theft and public intoxication were the main ones that saw Hardy being put away for short periods of time. Alcohol and Anthony Hardy did not mix well, and he knew it, but his addiction often got the better of him. The obsession with his ex-wife got so extreme that he allegedly bugged her entire house with microphones on one occasion and openly admitted to one of the many psychiatrists he saw that he wanted to kill her. Let's stop the timeline briefly and delve a little deeper into Hardy's personality. During the 1980s, Hardy formed a platonic relationship with a woman named Maureen Reeve, with whom he remained friends for almost a decade. Maureen recalled how, during their friendship, Hardy would often randomly appear at her doorstep and ask to stay for a few days before disappearing again. He was obsessed with serial killers and held a special place in his heart for the infamous 19th century serial killer Jack the Ripper and American murderer Dr. Harvey Hawley Crippen. Maureen said, Anthony was obsessed with serial killers and we talked about them on several occasions. We had long discussions about Jack the Ripper and Anthony thought he had a brilliant mind. He reckoned Jack the Ripper was a very clever bloke because he murdered all those prostitutes and never got caught. I never thought anything of it. If I had, I would have done something about it. Despite knowing of his mental health problems, Maureen insists that Hardy was a spirited man with high levels of intelligence. He only lost his rag with her on rare occasions, usually when he was in a poor headspace, and even then it was limited to him raising his voice. In 1995, Hardy spent another spell in a psychiatric hospital after being diagnosed with depression. It's thought that another diagnosis, that of diabetes, really hit him hard and he struggled to come to terms with it. His alcohol binges continued, strong cider and vodka were his tipples, and it appears as if he may have dabbled with drugs too. He drank as a coping mechanism that would lead to further convictions for petty crimes and stays in psychiatric units, that would then lead to depression, which would then lead to more alcohol consumption. The vicious cycle was never ending. Hardy found himself in trouble with the police again in 1998 after he was accused of raping a sex worker. No criminal charges ended up being filed as the woman who reported Hardy refused to press charges. Based on how this story pans out, I'm going to go with my gut and say that he probably did rape her. Let me know if you agree once you've heard the rest of the story. By the new millennium, Hardy had moved into a flat in Camden Town. He lived at Flat 4 Heartland on Royal College Street, a stone's throw away from the Regent's Canal. The flat was apparently in the middle of the apartment complex, yet was nicely tucked away beneath the communal staircase, hiding it from the direct view of passers-by. That last point, it seems, would later work as an advantage for Hardy. Let me get into the main part of our timeline now. On January 20th, 2002, the police were called by a distressed neighbour of Hardy's at 6.40am and they were asked to visit the flats. Once they arrived, they were informed by the neighbour that her front door had been vandalised with graffiti and a toxic chemical had been poured through her letterbox. She suspected the culprit was Anthony Hardy, as they had recently had a row about water which was dripping through his ceiling from her flat due to a leaky pipe. On her front door were the words, Fuck you, slut, you're a cunt, written in black paint. The letterbox was wet and had drip marks going all the way down to the floor. A pool of clear liquid could be seen bubbling on the carpet where it had collected. Following the drip trail, the officers soon found themselves at flat four. Hardy had literally led the police directly to his door. It appears as if Hardy wasn't in at first. The officers knocked but got no reply. They left the building and returned a couple of hours later. That time, Hardy was home and answered the door. 
Likely knowing he was banged to rights due to the daft trail he'd left the officers, Hardy admitted to having vandalised his neighbour's door and stated the liquid used was battery acid. He'd found the car battery a few days earlier and fashioned a funnel out of a plastic bottle that he'd cut down to size. Within his flat was a tin of black paint which he admitted was the one he used to graffiti the obscene message. Sergeant Nick Spinks was one of the officers sent to attend Hartland that day and when he searched Hardy's flat he noticed that one of the bedroom doors were locked. Questioning Hardy as to why that was, Sergeant Spinks was informed that the room belonged to Hardy's lodger and the only key to it was in the possession of said lodger. With no reason to not believe Hardy, Sergeant Spinks handcuffed him and explained that he was under arrest for criminal damage. As Hardy was handed his jacket, the officer noticed something. Whether he heard it jingle or felt it in his hand, a key was soon found after the jacket's inner linings were inspected. It ended up being the key to the locked room. Opening the door, Sergeant Spinks could not have prepared himself for what he saw. A woman was lying naked on a bed with a towel covering her face. Checking for a pulse, the officer didn't find one, and after removing the towel, it was clear to see that it had been placed there to cover up the many cuts and bruises on her head. There was also what appeared to be a bite mark on her right thigh. The body was that of Sally White, a 38-year-old woman living in London. Some sources claim that Sally was 31, but the sources I deemed to be the most reliable stated she was 38. I really struggled to find any background information about Sally, but her body was identified pretty quickly. She was known to local police officers due to her frequent attendance at the Manor Society, a day centre for homeless people near London Bridge. Sally, who was also known as Rose, had clearly fallen on hard times at some point in her life and it's believed that she had found herself in Hardy's flat after being approached by him for sex work. She was last seen alive on January 19th, 2002 at the Manor Society, though it's unclear whether she died on January 19th or 20th. It was clear from what the officers found at Hardy's flat that the woman's death was no accident. As a result, Hardy's charge was upgraded to murder and he was subsequently taken in for questioning at Kentish Town Police Station. It was there that he answered every single question posed to him with a blanket response of no comment. Further investigation of Hardy's flat revealed bloodstains on the walls of the locked room as well as the pillows. A bucket of soapy water containing a sponge was found next to the bed, indicating either the blood had been washed away or, more disturbingly, Sally's body had been washed post-mortem. Some of Sally's clothes were found in the room near her body. Like the walls and pillows, they were also bloodstained. The recovered items of clothing were a hoodie, a pair of tights and a bra, all of which had been cut into pieces. Anthony Hardy appeared at Highbury Corner Magistrates Court and gave his account of what had happened on January 19th and 20th, 2002 to two psychiatrists and a social worker. They were appearing at court on behalf of the psychiatric diversion team. Hardy explained to them that on January 19th, a Saturday, he excessively drank alcohol to the point of blacking out. He admitted to having been in such a state numerous times in the past. After that, his memory was hazy, but he did recall pouring the car battery acid through his neighbour's letterbox and painting obscenities on her door. Regarding Sally White, Hardy said he had no idea how she came to be in his flat and denied any responsibility for her death. The psychiatrist assessed Hardy's mental state and found him to be severely depressed. They advised that he was fit to be remanded in custody rather than in a high-security psychiatric hospital, but they recommended he be kept on suicide watch. His depression and withdrawal from alcohol put him at an extremely high risk of self-harm. 
Hardy was remanded in custody at Pentonville Prison in Islington, North London. On January 31st, 2002, a post-mortem of Sally White's body was undertaken by Dr. Freddie Patel. Despite all of the aforementioned details, such as the bloodstains found in the room and the cuts, bruises and bite mark on her body, Dr. Patel found the cause of Sally's death to be that of a heart attack. Sally was said to have coronary heart disease and her death was a direct result of that. Dr. Patel said, The preponderant evidence shows that Sally White's death was consistent with natural causes. Explaining away the non-datal head wound as being the likely result of Sally's head hitting the floor after a potential stumble, Dr. Patel confirmed that no other significant injuries were found. He said that an examination of Sally's cardiovascular system showed severe coronary atheroma with 40-60% occlusion in proximal anterior branch. In layman's terms, that means severe heart disease with 40-60% blockages at the front of her heart. Based on Dr. Patel's findings, the murder charge was withdrawn and Hardy was charged only with criminal damage. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Whilst awaiting his court date, Hardy was seen by a few more psychiatrists who concluded his mental health was deteriorating at a rapid pace. On March 12, 2002, Hardy attended Highbury Corner Magistrates Court to receive his sentence for criminal damage. It was there that the psychiatrist he'd spoken to whilst on remand made the recommendation that he be made subject to a hospital order under Section 37 of the Mental Health Act rather than be sent to prison. Hardy pleaded guilty to the charge of criminal damage and a hospital order was decided as being the most suitable method of dealing with his case. He was initially sent back to Pentonville Prison with the promise of being moved to the Mornington Unit, an adult intensive care ward at St Pancras Hospital in central London, within 28 days. The move came on April 8, 2002, 27 days later. Hardy was discharged from the Mornington Unit on April 29, 2002, and sent to Cardigan Ward at St Luke's Hospital. That's an adult acute ward that deals with people who are experiencing a severe, short-term episode of mental illness. His discharge summary from the Mornington Ward read, Mr Hardy remained stable throughout his admission with no evidence of mental illness. He was granted increasing escorted leave. He spent a lot of time in bed and watching television. Apart from going through a cycle of being granted unescorted leave and having it revoked, and of course his several relapses with alcohol, Hardy only really caused concern on a couple of occasions during his time in hospital. He was abusive towards another patient on July 2nd, 2002, and decorated a glass bottle with the words Sally Rose White R.I.P. on July 12th whilst attending a creative workshop. Hardy was discharged from Section 37 on November 4th, 2002, seven months after first being admitted to the Mornington Unit at St Pancras. Those discharge notes read, Tony Hardy's accommodation situation causes concern. Under the Mental Health Act, we concede there is a mental illness, but there is nothing at present to convince us that detention in hospital continues to be necessary. He has a natural human right to be treated in surroundings which will encourage and support his own efforts. Hardy was said to have accepted that he had a mental illness, but that he felt able to live at home rather than in a psychiatric unit. He was finally discharged from the hospital on November 15, 2002. The decision to release Anthony Hardy will forever be a controversial one. Within six weeks of his release, he would go on to kill two more innocent women, having already gotten away with the murder of Sally White. 
The first of those unfortunate women was 29-year-old Elizabeth Selina Vallad, who, if I'm not mistaken, was a mother of one born in the United States. Her mum, Jackie, married an Iranian man over there, and they had one child together, Elizabeth. The relationship didn't last long, though, and the mother and daughter moved back to the UK a year after Elizabeth was born. They settled in the market town of Arnold in Nottinghamshire, where Jackie would go on to work as a part-time receptionist in a car dealership. Known to her friends as Liz, Elizabeth was a rebellious teen who fell in with the wrong crowd. Her friends reportedly used to steal things from the family home. She attended a comprehensive school in Arnold, and once she'd finished, the teenager secured a few different jobs before deciding to move 130 miles south to the nation's capital. She was 17 when she made the move to London. Often keeping secrets from her mum and her mum's partner, Peter Harold, Elizabeth didn't answer many of the questions posed to her by her worried family. It's believed she made a living in London by working as an escort. Jackie constantly pleaded for Elizabeth to move back to the Midlands, but she was settled in London. She lived in a nice apartment in Chelsea, had plenty of designer clothes, and had met a man whom she adored. At some point, Elizabeth underwent cosmetic surgery. She had breast and buttock implants. That may seem like a random thing to say, but it'll make sense why I said it shortly. The other unfortunate woman to have come into contact with Anthony Hardy after his release from hospital was 34-year-old Bridget McLennan. Originally from New Zealand, Bridget moved to the UK with her family in the early 1980s when she was a teenager. The family of four consisted of Bridget, her brother and her mum and dad. In 1994, when Bridget was 26, she married a man named Abdul Amzil at the Camden Registry Office. Abdul was a painter and decorator originally from Morocco. The marriage didn't last, but my sources indicate that Bridget had two sons with Abdul. The eldest appears to have been born in the same year as the marriage, 1994, with the youngest coming along two years later in 1996. As with Sally White, there's very limited information available about Bridget's life. She seems to have been in trouble with the police on at least one occasion because her DNA was registered on the UK's National DNA Database. How do I know that her DNA was on the database? Let me explain. On December 30th, 2002, a homeless man searched for food by the apartment complex where Anthony Hardy lived. In one of the communal bins outside, he came across some bags giving off an extremely foul odour. The man opened one of the bags and saw what appeared to be human body parts stashed inside them. The police were called and the area was sealed off. Inside the bags, they found two pieces of a human leg and an upper torso. All bins in the surrounding area were checked and the officers soon discovered more body parts. A right arm, left arm, left foot and lower torso were also found. The body parts were identified as belonging to Elizabeth Vallad and Bridget McLennan due to a couple of things I mentioned earlier. The serial codes on Elizabeth's implants were traced to a hospital in London and it wasn't long before they confirmed who they belonged to. With her DNA already on file from a previous crime, Bridget's body was identified even faster. Divers searched the nearby Regent's Canal in an attempt to find further body parts, specifically the two women's heads and hands. To this day, the heads and hands of Elizabeth Vallad and Bridget McLennan have never been recovered. I'm not 100% sure how exactly Anthony Hardy became the police's main person of interest, but if we think about it logically, it starts to make sense. The bins where the body parts were found belonged to the flats where he lived. Another woman's body had been found in his flat 11 months earlier. He at least warranted being questioned. On New Year's Eve 2002, police officers visited Hardy's flat, 
To their surprise, the door was ajar. The lights were on, but nobody was home. Instinctively, the officers headed straight for the room where Sally White's body was found back in January. The door was once again locked. There was a strong smell coming from inside the room, which the experienced officers had smelled many times before. Forcing their way inside, the officers were greeted with the sight of a human torso. It belonged to Elizabeth Vallad. Their main person of interest had just become their key suspect. Anthony Hardy evaded the police for two more days, but his Achilles heel returned to haunt him. His diabetes, which he loathed so much, had to be kept in check by regular insulin doses. That meant when he was running low or ran out, he needed to top up his prescription by visiting a nearby hospital. He did just that and was caught on CCTV doing so. Sporting a baseball cap and a shaved beard, he waited in line like everybody else to collect his medication. As for how he was arrested, there are two similar yet conflicting stories. Both stories state that an off-duty police officer spotted Hardy on January 2nd, 2003, but the location is different in each version. One source claimed he was in a local cafe when he was spotted and arrested, whereas others claim he was spotted in a hospital waiting room as he waited to collect his insulin. Regardless, retired police officer Mike Burrows was the hero of the hour who spotted Hardy and called the police. Two officers arrived at the scene first and attempted to arrest Hardy, but he wasn't going down without a fight. One of the officers appears to have been knocked unconscious by Hardy. The second officer also reportedly suffered an eye injury due to the scuffle. When backup arrived, Hardy was overpowered and then arrested. He was taken to Collindale Police Station in North London. During a comprehensive search of Hardy's flat, it lasted seven weeks, they found all manner of disturbing items. The decorative glass bottle Hardy had made on July 12, 2002 with the words Sally Rose White RIP written on them was found. Several pornographic photos and videos were found throughout the flat. It appeared as if Hardy was either a devil worshipper or just really into the occult because his flat was decorated with satanic paraphernalia. Using luminol, a chemical used to reveal bloodstains that can't be seen by the human eye, forensics personnel uncovered bloodstains all over the flat. There was evidence of what appeared to be drag marks from the bathroom to the room that he tended to keep locked. Perhaps the most crucial evidence was found in an envelope within Hardy's flat. 44 photographs had been placed inside with a note that read, Frank, please keep these negatives for me at all costs. The photographs were of Elizabeth Vallad and Bridget McLennan. After killing Elizabeth and Bridget, Hardy took photographs of their bodies in various poses and placed items on them, including a devil mask and a baseball cap. It was the same baseball cap Hardy was seen wearing on the hospital waiting room CCTV footage. In the photos, Elizabeth wore a pair of Mr. Happy Socks from the Mr. Men series of books. Hardy had purchased them a few days before murdering her. He then dismembered the women's bodies using either an electric saw or a hacksaw, placed the pieces into bin bags and dumped them in the bins outside his building. Further CCTV footage was found that showed Hardy dumping the bags in the bins. Elizabeth Vallard is thought to have been murdered on December 19th or 20th, 2002, and Bridget McLennan is thought to have been murdered on December 24th or 25th, 2002. Knowing what they knew then, the police felt that Sally White's death might have been incorrectly put down as a heart attack when in reality, she was probably murdered by Anthony Hardy. They believe that he was in the process of arranging Sally's body into a pose for his sordid photograph collection when he was interrupted by the police on the back of the complaint made by his neighbour. 
As he had before, Hardy's answer to every single question was no comment. Whilst on remand and awaiting his trial, Hardy was assessed by more psychiatrists. He told them that Elizabeth and Bridget had died by way of suffocation whilst they took part in bondage sex. He said he had paid them for their services but had fallen asleep on top of them. His hefty body mass had restricted their ability to breathe, resulting in death in both cases. Hardy remained adamant that he had no idea how Sally White came to be in his flat on January 19th or 20th 2002 as he was paralytic at the time. He was therefore unable to confirm how she died. The trial began in November 2003 but right away a spanner was thrown in the works. Hardy changed his not guilty plea to guilty as soon as the trial started. He admitted to having killed Sally White, Elizabeth Vallad and Bridget McLennan in his flat. How he did that was to lure each of the women to his flat by way of offering them money for sex. After reportedly having what was referred to as extreme sex with each of the women, Hardy strangled them to death. The only motive provided was that he wanted to take sexual pictures of their dead bodies after indulging in what he referred to as a sadomasochistic sex ritual with them. The court heard that Hardy was classed as a pornography-obsessed necrophiliac, which means he gained sexual pleasure from posing the bodies of his victims in sexual poses and photographing them. On November 24th or 25th, 2003, Mr Justice Kelly sentenced Anthony Hardy to life imprisonment. Judge Kelly said, The unspeakable indignities to which you subjected the bodies of your last two victims in order to satisfy your depraved and perverted needs are not in doubt. Detective Chief Inspector Ken Bell said, Hardy dismembered his last two victims with considerable skill. Whether this was part of his gratification or simply an attempt to hide his crimes, we will never know. After the trial concluded, the police revealed that Hardy was suspected of being involved in other sexual assaults and murders. The Metropolitan Police believed he may have been responsible for at least three rapes, one sexual assault and six murders that all bore a striking resemblance to Hardy's M.O. Still, no further action was taken due to a lack of evidence in each case. In September 2005, an independent review into the care and treatment of Anthony Hardy was commissioned by the North Central London Strategic Health Authority and the London Borough of Camden with the support and cooperation of the Metropolitan Police. I've linked the report in my show notes. It's well worth a read if you want to learn about some of the finer details of this case and Anthony's time spent in psychiatric hospital units between April and November 2002. In May 2010, Anthony Hardy's sentence was upgraded from life imprisonment to a whole life tariff. Mr Justice Keith said of the decision, This is one of those exceptionally rare cases in which life should mean life. Were you wondering what happened to Dr Freddie Patel? the pathologist who said Sally White died of a heart attack? On August 23rd, 2012, his name was erased from the medical register by the General Medical Council. That decision came from another high-profile case in which his examination of a body had led to an incorrect cause of death. Ian Tomlinson, a newspaper vendor who was pushed by PC Simon Harwood during the 2009 G20 summit protests, died due to an injury to his liver that caused internal bleeding and then cardiac arrest. Dr. Patel stated that he had died from heart problems, and in total, he had made 68 mistakes during his analysis. On November 26, 2020, Anthony John Hardy died in HM Prison Franklin in County Durham, North East England. His official cause of death was sepsis. 
Thirteen days earlier, on November 13th, 2020, another British serial killer who was serving his whole life tariff at HM Prison Franklin died with coronavirus. That was the Yorkshire Ripper Peter Sutcliffe. Within the space of two weeks, two of Britain's most despicable serial killers had perished. And that was the story of British murderer Anthony Hardy. Thanks again Stephanie Thomas and Rick Brown for suggesting that case. Let me know your thoughts about it in the YouTube comments or on social media. I've got three new reviews to read out this week. Marty C left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. I stumbled upon your podcast after seeing you on TikTok, and I'm so glad I did. Most podcasts of true crime seem geared towards the US, so it's so refreshing that Britain is featured with this fascinating podcast. I love the mix of historical and more recent cases, as well as the straightforward approach in your delivery of facts and stats. Sky Emilino left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Ah, Stuart, I absolutely adore your podcast. I have a very short attention span, but with your voice and the fact you don't babble on, I can listen to the whole episode. You must have more confidence in your pronunciation of words. You do a super job. You're so funny too. Thank you so much, Stuart. Kind regards and sunshine to you. And finally, Shorty the Trucker left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I started this show around four weeks ago and it's brilliant as a trucker from the northeast. It keeps me occupied on my journeys. Your confidence has come on massively. Great to hear a Yorkshire voice. Keep them coming. Also, maybe a story on a man called Ral Moat from the northeast. Thanks, Stuart, for keeping me sane on my tours of the UK. I especially loved your interview with Dr. Richard Shepherd. Thank you so much, Marty, Sky, and Shorty, for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you to Dale Russell and Marty Shane for joining the show's Patreon. I have started making more regular content exclusive for Patreon members, so it is a good time to join. Please continue emailing your case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or just message me on social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you will get a shout out. As a last minute reminder, I'm giving away seven true crime books to seven listeners to celebrate the launch of season, you guessed it, seven. You've got until tomorrow at 5pm Greenwich Mean Time. That's Friday, September 23rd, 2022. Head over to Twitter or Instagram, like the giveaway post, Tag up to three friends and make sure you're following me to be entered in the draw. That does it for the opening of season seven. I'm going to leave you with a trailer for one of my favorite true crime podcasts ever. Red Rum is one of the most professionally produced podcasts I've ever heard. I'm not even joking. And the content is simply breathtaking. The narration, the writing, the production. It's it's just, I envy to be at that level at some point. Please make sure you check them out. For now, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio. She went on to ask him, You're not a serial killer, right? He typed back, No. The pair continued to exchange messages, and then on the 22nd of November, they decided to meet up. Little did Sarah know, but the man who was messaging her under a false name had googled how to make homemade poisons to kill humans and what chemical could you put on a rag 
and hold to someone's face to make them go to sleep immediately. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Search Red Rum True Crime wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>